Hello and thank you for joining us. My name is Professor Peter Nash from Griffith University in beautiful downtown Brisbane. And uh, today we're very fortunate to be able to have a chat with my friend and colleague, Professor of Infectious Diseases, Public Health, Preventative Medicine and Ophthalmology. I don't know how that fits in, but he might explain it later. Oregon Health, <laughs> Oregon, Oregon Health and Science University in the US. Um, and also one of the CSF Steering Committee members, Professor Kevin Winthrop. Welcome, Kevin. Great for you to give us some time today. We're going to be discussing a recent publication in Rheumatology and Therapy, um, and it falls into the uh, vaccination story that we are um, presently coping with, with COVID and with influenza and pandemics and our immune suppressed patients. So we hope this will be of particular interest. This paper looks at influenza adverse events in patients, not just rheumatoid, but ulcerative colitis, PSA, and they've chosen the tofacitinib clinical development program to have a look at. So can you tell us a little bit about um, what made you want to do this study and why you chose tofa sure. program? You bet, Peter. Um, and yeah, we'll we'll talk about the ophthalmology thing someday over beer. <laughs> it's it's worth the chat and worth the beer. Um, you know, I yeah. So this, this study was kind of hatched early in the pandemic when we all had lots of questions around jack inhibitors and how they influence the risk of viral infections in general. Of course, we were all worried about COVID at the time. We had no data at that time, so. We thought, what, what data do we have laying around, what's existing that might shed some light on the risk of COVID or just viral illness in general? So uh, we looked at, at our long-term uh, extension data and you know, we thought, hey, what, what data piles are around? So with TOFA, of course, there was an extensive clinical development program and a number of indications. So there was lots of uh, phase two, phase three data uh, and it could all be combined uh, for, you know, various things. And this was a burning question. So, uh, you know, you and I have both worked uh, extensively on, with, with TOFA and research around TOFA. And um, so th this was just something that seemed like a no-brainer to do. So um, that's what we did. You know, we, we piled all this data together across indications and decided to look at influenza. Now, these are not easy things to look at. Um, you know, it's, you know how it is, you're an investigator in these trials and someone gets what looks like the flu, you maybe mark it down as an adverse event label of flu, whether it's truly influenza or not, unless you tested them, you know, you're, you're not going to know. So we know that, you know, people do these trials, we get this data. We know some of these cases labeled as flu aren't flu. And we know, you know, some of the cases that aren't labeled as flu uh, are probably flu. So um, so that being said, the limitations of this type of analyses, uh, or just really in general, studying viral illness like this, um, you know, that you do the best you can. And was this all done pre-COVID pandemic or through the whole pandemic? Yeah, I, I'd have to look at when we started this, but I, I, my recollection is we started doing it at, at the start of the pandemic. I mean, the pandemic okay. hit, and I think in the first few months, we all were struggling like huh wonder what jack and to the risk of uh, covid or other viral infections so that that was when we started doing it yeah and you chose interesting groups like the uc group are 10 years younger the psa are somewhere in the middle and the rheumatoids a little bit older were there major differences between the groups i think steroid use might be different something like that 
Yeah, so they were different in age, uh, a bit different comorbidities, of course. Uh, difference in steroid use. I think that you know the UC group was using more steroids, um, which would be typical of IBD. So yeah, there there were some differences uh, at at baseline, but but a lot of people had you know risk factors for you know badness. I would say in terms of you know you get COVID or flu or something else, you know, you know, you have a higher risk of a more severe outcome. I was just looking through the table. Interestingly, the RA patients, one in three is obese. The UC patients aren't, like 14%. Yeah. And same with just funny little things like the PSA patients, only 20% were on a steroid, whereas half the RAs are on a steroid. So there are all these interesting little background quirks to the thing. So how did you go about it? What was the methods? Um. You know, pre pretty standard and similar to studies we've done before. You know, we just, I think there was a phase one trial in there, but most of it was phase two, three, and a few phase four studies, uh, RCTs and LTEs. And we took that data and uh, simply combined it across indication. We found all these events labeled as influenza or influenza-like illness events. Uh, and we you know, piled them all together. We, we calculated incidents, you know, time of, to first event, uh, calculated incidents, censored people at the time of first event, and, you know, looked at incidents across the different disease indications, uh, looked at incidents associated with various, um, you know, risk factors, steroid use, methotrexate use, TOFA dose, you know, some people on this were on TOFA 10. Remember, this was back in the, the glory days. Where, where you could use 10. Uh, and of course, you see patients were using 10. So, um, you know, uh, that was pretty similar. And then we, I, I believe we modeled, you know, risk factors for this outcome. So at the end, we, we kind of threw, uh, again, you know, our covariates were all those things I mentioned, potential risk factors, as well as underlying disease uh, to see what was associated with, uh, with flu. And you had a good number of patients, something like 8,000 RA patients. 500 um, TOFA, um, you know, a fair number of fair number of patients, and this was a H1N1. Does that matter? Which particular strain of flu was going through the population at the time? Um, no, I think you know over the time period these studies were done, it it would have been any flu. You know, I mean, certainly at some time points, H3N2 were more common, or H1N1 was more common. Uh, I probably in one or two of the years here, B was more common. Actually, we had a couple of big B years. So this would have been, you know, encompassing any, any type of flu that was coming through. And again, I, as I said before, I'm, I mean, there's misclassification, right? Some of these cases probably aren't yeah. real. And I'm sure we didn't find some that were labeled as nasopharyngitis, you know, and they were really flu. So yeah, yeah. I better correct that there was 8,000 RA patients on TOFA of whom yeah. 500 had uh, an influenza AE. Now, when you rank the AEs, are there some that are important and others that are just a nuisance? Is there like serious infection compared to not so serious infection? Well, we certainly looked at the ones that were labeled as serious. Um, it was a small, you know, small percent of these, but we, you know, again, we did try to cap, we basically captured any AE that had influenza is as a term. So, yeah. um, you know, I think the ones labeled as influenza are, are probably much more likely to be influenza. Um, 
some of the others, you know, influenza like illness. I mean, that, that is what we track from a public health standpoint, of course. Uh, yep. But again, some of those aren't, aren't real. Uh, so and so was- I, I have to ask you to remind me, I, I think the percent of cases that were serious and ended up hospitalization was quite small, but. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it's quite small. But it's interesting. You did have data from the adalimumab group, from a placebo group, from methotrexate group for comparison purposes. And it does look like there's a dose response, 5BD to 10BD, which is interesting. Yeah, if I remember these results, I remember the the rates were highest in UC, and they were maybe almost double some of the other indications or or PSA, but they were definitely higher in UC. It surprised me a little bit because they were younger people. On the other hand, I think there was more steroid use there, and that probably explained that. Um, and there was a dose effect. Certainly, we saw higher rates with 10 versus 5, which would be consistent with just infections across the board with TOFA and, uh, and other jack inhibitors, really. And um, you know, that that 10, of course, was more commonly used in the UC group, too. So I think probably that and the steroid issue is why they had the higher rates. Higher rates. Now, you probably won't know, but one of the commonest things we see is a nice, stable RA patient doing well. They get a vax. It doesn't have to be COVID. It can be the influenza vax. And it flares their arthritis. You wouldn't have captured any of that in this particular study. No, and in fact, we didn't have a lot of vaccine information, if I remember right, in the study. Um, I don't think, uh, you know, that prior vaccination of flu was tracked for all the studies. I think in some studies it probably was, but I don't believe that was something we had to analyze because I don't think it's in the model. Um, You have to look at the paper, but I don't don't remember that being, you know, something we had. You know, it's too bad because if we had that systematically, it'd be it'd be yeah. nice to analyze whether. It and your difference. gut feeling is that a real thing or just a one-off coincidental thing? That um, that someone flared yeah. after a vaccine. Yeah. Yeah, I you know I mean the studies that have looked at that formally in larger populations, of course, tend not to see an association. Um, that being said, that doesn't mean that there's individual cases where it's it occurs i mean ucra flare after a natural infection sometimes right yep yeah so i don't see why you couldn't see it after a, a non-natural infection yep yep fair enough <laughs> like a vaccine. Just, to, just to put some numbers in there of the eight thousand ra 1.7 percent were serious and eight patients were hospitalized so as you said a very low number who wound up having to have a serious infection. Yeah. So interesting that the that the um, risk was higher in the UC group, as you've said. Um, any other take-home messages from this particular analysis as far as risk factors are concerned and what, what clinicians should be looking out for? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess one thing is I, I thought the analysis made sense. So it's always nice when you do a study and the results kind of jive with what other studies suggest or what you think you should find based on the biology. I mean, again, steroids, we always talk about them and there's no question that, you know, five milligrams or higher. I mean, there's risk there. Um, and, you know, I, I think that the story with 10 milligrams versus five milligrams, that's pretty well hammered out in terms of risk of uh, viral infections, but just other infections as well. So uh, I, I think methotrexate came up in that model too, if I remember right. And that that's always just kind of a, 
an argument, you know, initially going back to the TOFA story with Zostia, remember initially we found some increase that seemed to be independently associated with methotrexate, but then that went away, you know, over time as we had more statistical power and it was really just clearly related to the steroids and not, not the uh, methotrexate. So I, I don't know, I, I'm not sure that methotrexate raises the risk of of flu, um, it, it might, and it might slightly, I guess that's what this analysis would, would suggest, but uh, it, obviously there's reasons why it might. So, so to see some slight bump would, would not be surprising. Now, do you think um, flu rates, because everyone's wearing masks, actually everyone's not wearing masks anymore, the flu rates will go back. And yeah. <clears throat> what other viruses should we be cognizant of like HPV and other things. Does this give you a kind of a, a twinkle at, that you've got to think about other viruses, particularly HPV in young women? Yeah, I mean, people never talk on about jacks, this. On jacks, I mean. On yeah, jacks. I mean, I so so one concern I've always had with um, jacks or, you know, even B-cell depletion therapy. I mean, you name it, there are all these drugs. A lot of these drugs, you worry about kind of immuno surveillance for uh cancers you worry about you know nk cells are they doing their job um are we promoting viral growth in latent viruses like uh varicella or hpv and things like that you know I, to my knowledge none of the drugs we have approved for these indications have been found to increase risk of hpv infection or hpv related cancers um but it's something i'm always wondering, I've always wondered about, and I, I don't think we've done a lot of systematic investigations to rule out that possibility. Uh, it, it might be nice to do that, particularly <clears throat> with some of the newer agents as they, as they come out. But I, um, you know, so far in a lot, you know, we haven't seen an increased risk of cervical cancer, of course, with, with any of these compounds. So, so I, I don't know, though, I think it's an open question. I think, you know, and it does raise, uh, you know, it just reminds us, Peter, like you're saying, I mean, we need to make sure people get vaccinated. And HPV and HPV-related cancers are, are almost 100% preventable. I mean, it's a, an amazing public health achievement if you can convince people to get the vaccine at the right time in their life. So, um, but I, I would say, you know, in terms of this study and the pandemic and everything, I mean, clearly respiratory viruses are on the map and it's, you know, we just had a pretty big flu year here. It's trending downward now. And it came after a pretty big year down uh, down under where you guys are. Um, I mean, you know, our hospital last month was full of people with flu, not COVID or anything else. It was RSV and flu. And it's just kind of like back to the old days, uh, maybe even a little worse. So, I mean, clearly RSV, flu, you know, SARS-CoV-2, I mean, the, these are all going to be players for a while until we develop better ways to prevent them. So so there's a bivalent flu COVID shot being developed. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different COVID shots still in development. Uh, I think I looked at the WHO website the other day. It was like 165 vaccine still in phase something to something. Um, yeah, I don't, you know, FDA kind of raised this question here last week as to whether we should be doing annual flu shots uh, and annual COVID shots. 
you know, in the fall, uh, that has not been decided here yet. You know, the people who met with FDA didn't really address it. I would say I know, you know, a number of us think that that's not uh, necessarily the right thing to do and that there's really no data at this point to support, you know, vaccinating people for COVID every, every fall, just like <clears throat> flu. Uh, so I think it, it just it remains to be seen where that goes. I suspect it's going to trend towards, you know, targeted subgroup recommendations around immunosuppressed patients or extremely elderly patients that, that might be recommended uh, for that strategy. But I, I'll just have to see. I mean, we need more data to really understand when the best time to boost people is. Um, and we just don't we just don't know yet. Well, I was going to say, because here most people have had three or four and there's no guidance as to when to have the next one. So we'll have to wait and watch that space, I suppose. Yeah, I think we're going to have to wait. Um, I, and, I mean, eventually the annual flu shot's going to go away too, because we're going to have better flu shots that produce uh, more robust immunity, and you're not going to need to keep plugging people every 12 months. So I, so I, I don't know. I mean, I honestly, I mean, my, my two cents is that we, we have the wrong strategy for flu. We, we're, we're doing something now just to toe the line until we get a better vaccine. And now, you know, you see society or governments talking about going down the same path uh, with COVID vaccines. And I think a lot of us who do vaccine research think that, you know, hey, time out, that may not be the best path, at least for the general population. And um, let's let's get some more data and then let's figure out who's who's really at the highest risk and how best to protect them. So, uh, and some of that depends on the vaccines, of course. So there are more vaccines still coming. Uh, and I think ones that more broadly target, uh, you know, variants in general will be be the winners, of course. Can I ask you a bit about that? The anti-vaxxers persistent, say the mRNA technology is a dangerous technology. What What's your comment on that? Well, if the Wall Street investors and everybody else who's put all their eggs in that basket are wrong, I guess they might be wrong. However, <laughs> however, boy, the train has left the station. I mean, there's there's a lot of mRNA vaccines in development for a number of um, viruses, you know, RSV, flu. I mean, some of those are pretty far along, phase two, phase three. Uh, and they have pretty darn encouraging results uh, to date. So, and, you know. Do you see any safety signal? I mean, so far with those programs, no. And I mean, I think one would argue that, sure, there are safety signals with mRNA COVID vaccines. But, you know, they're pretty far and few between. I mean, the, the serious events with those vaccines are, are quite rare. Um so I, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I haven't seen any, I haven't seen any uh, adverse event frequencies of anything bad associated with mRNA vaccines that would make me think that, you know, uh, they're going to get run off the track. You know, adenoviral vector vaccines, I'd be a little more worried about. I mean, clearly they fell out of favor with regards to COVID. Uh, there were some clear, you know, major safety problems with them, albeit quite rare. Uh, and in certain subgroups of people, but they were concerning enough, you know, people decided to stop using them. So I don't know. There's a lot of adenoviral vector vaccines in development still. So I don't know where that'll all end up. But I, to me, I mean, clearly the mRNA vaccines have 
you know, have proven to have a higher benefit uh, to risk ratio and, and probably are. So you mentioned RSV and GSK just bringing an RSV vax to our country. Broadly speaking, for our immunosuppressed patients, what vaxes should we recommend? Flu, COVID when there's more guidance, Prevanarfa pneumococcus, RSV, Haemophilus, which what kind of panel should be really thinking about for the high risk person, the retux person and other, yeah. other sort of high risk people? You mentioned RSV and um, so, you know, what, what to be giving, of course, is, you know, up to date on shingles, vaccine, flu, COVID boosters when, when it's time again, and we don't know yet. Um, and then the new pneumococcal, you know, the conjugate vaccines. We have PCV20 here. I'm not sure if you guys have it there yet. Um, but that will be coming if it's not there already. You might have PCV15. That would probably be the new one uh, if, you, if you don't have the 20. But you also mentioned RSV. And I mean, I, I think that is that's something missing from the vaccine armamentarium. You know, it has been for forever. It's primarily a childhood problem. Uh, so I think a lot of us as adults haven't really thought about it that much. But of course, in immunocompromised patients uh, and very elderly, it can be uh, it can be a devastating infection. So, you know, we don't have a vaccine yet for those folks, uh, but there is one coming. Um, you know, the, the GSK program, they use the same adjuvant as they use in Shingrix. Um, and they have one around, uh, I think it's a pre-fusion protein in RSV. And they did present their uh, data at uh, the annual ID week meeting that uh, I go to uh, in the fall. And this was last last fall, so just a few months ago. And the, the phase three data looked great in older individuals in terms of efficacy. So I, I suspect that will, will come and I suspect there will be uh, recommendations around using that vaccine in, in older individuals, particularly those who are immunosuppressed. I don't know that that study included immunosuppressed people. I didn't. I don't think it did. So I think it'll kind of be the same issue as it was with the shingles program. You know, like, well, here's here's data in the general population, and now we're going to have to do some sub studies in some of the immunocompromised populations to to see how well it works. But but I think that is on the on the horizon. Okay, so let's just finish off on this paper. It was post hoc, three big groups. It says here from 2004 to 2019, so quite a big uh, period of time. It said that um, the incidences were generally similar between TOFA placebo and the active comparator. There were minor differences and uh, have a look at the paper to see the numbers and to make sure you're happy with uh, um, the different groups. Um, overall, the data seems to suggest the risk of influenza or the complications in TOFA-treated patients was similar to that observed in the general population, which is a bit reassuring. And the incidence of something severe was really quite low, around 1.7%. So any other take-home comments you wanted to make about this paper, um, Kevin? Yeah, I, I think that summarizes it well. I mean, I, I would just say, hey, you know, it was somewhat reassuring. We didn't really see, you know, elevated risk relative to the comparative groups in those trials. Um, the serious event, you know, proportion of patients isn't too off what we'd expect in the general population, where it's usually kind of 1% or hospitalized or less. Um, so maybe it's a little higher in this, but, but these were fairly immunosuppressed patients, particularly some subsets of them. And I think our model found the right risk factors, you know, steroids and, higher dose um, 
TOFA. So, I mean, it's just another, you know, another study saying, hey, limit, limit steroids best you can, get people to the lowest dose of immunosuppression as you can, and you'll, you'll limit their risk. Um, but but uh, yes, I think overall the study made sense and it, and it was uh, reassuring. Excellent. So thank you again for your time, Kevin. If you'd like to know more about this paper and others uploaded to the CSF website this month, you can get detailed slide sets and uh, available in the publication section, cytokinesignaling.com. Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or other podcast media. Give us some feedback. And Kevin, we greatly appreciate your time. And we look forward to chatting again soon and catching up maybe at EULA, having that yeah. beer and talking about ophthalmology. Yeah, let's do it. Let's have a beer. Talk about it. Good to see you, Peter. Yeah, cheers. All the best. Cheers.